We said last week that the Christian walk is a walk of continuing, renewed second chances. Our failures and our shortcomings are not a burden to continue to weigh us down in guilt, but rather to continue to point us to the goodness of God's grace. With a week behind us and the end of Vacation Bible School, I am overwhelmed with the faithfulness of our church and the effectiveness of her ministries. I love the summer season, especially for ministry, not just in children or youth ministries, but all around. Summer invites an atmosphere of community that glorifies God. In nature, the overwhelming heat forces us to slow down as to not run ourselves into the ground from exhaustion. And in our places of work, too, a life picks up a slower pace. A common practice seems to be summer working hours, vacations, and so on. And for school teachers and those who are associated with schools, it brings about a season of rest and rejuvenation, or at least it should. Sometimes that isn't the case. It's during this season that we are able to find in our relationships people making time for one another in a way that we do not consistently find during the rest of our busy year. I am thankful for summer and the effect that it has on ministry. And I am amazed, reflecting on Vacation Bible School, of all of the people who sacrificially made time to serve our children and to make opportunities to present the good news that we celebrate today and every day. I'm thankful for all of you and your contributions and support that make that possible. One personal reflection that stands out from Vacation Bible School is the overwhelming number of students who were able to memorize not one, but three Bible memory verses. When I first issued the challenge to our students to memorize Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, and I told them and promised them that if they were able to do this, that I would reward them with an ice cream cone, I saw immediately some fear and concern in the students' eyes, as well as some perhaps discontent in parents who thought that so many verses or so many words would be too much for students to grasp. Still, by the end of the week, I'm glad to say that I gave out more ice cream cones than I can actually remember or count. Our students were successful in their endeavor. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, but a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a relationship in these verses that is undeniably crucial to being able to understand our faith. In fact, I would consider it a shame to challenge anyone to memorize any one of these verses without the complementary pairs. It is by grace that we are saved, but that isn't the end of our story. It is a work of God that saves us so that no one can boast in ourselves, but we certainly can boast in the plan that God has for us. We are to do good works, but we couldn't possibly pursue them without being His workmanship, which is by grace alone through faith alone. So I drew the challenge, and many excelled. Elevating our goal beyond simply memorizing a few words, it forced our students to not just string empty words with little understanding together and instead to consider their meaning as they applied it and stored it in their hearts. How many times while practicing these memory verses did I see the light bulb go off in students' heads as they realized that grace is, a repeated, is repeated again and explained as a gift of God? An abstract and somewhat amorphous concept was translated into the tangible concept of a gift being presented to them. One student, struggling particularly in reciting the verses, not so much in memorizing it, but in reciting it with all of the distraction around them um, and the extra nervousness that they felt as they were being tested, caused them to stumble over themselves. And when we eliminated the, the distractions, they did a great job. And in all of that struggle... I was reminded of something that is relevant for our study of Jonah today. I saw a lot more failure than success at getting the memory verse memorized during vacation Bible school. 
I said many students succeeded and memorized all three verses and earned their ice cream cones. But with every success, I saw at least four failures. Probably from the same student. They failed in coming and reciting their verses four times before they were successful. But they didn't give up. Even though they failed, they persevered to success. Jonah was such a failure, wasn't he? Good works which God had prepared before him to go to Nineveh to proclaim God's warning against the Ninevites became something that he ran away from. In disobedience, he fled. and In resignation, he plunged. But by grace, not of his own doing, God appointed a great fish that vomited him onto dry land. From the belly of Sheol, he was rescued. If we take this narrative and apply it to our own disobedience to God, our own rescue by grace, the question to ask that we'll consider this morning is how do we respond when God gives us a second chance? As application last week, we looked at six things that you should do to run to God. Realize that God is pursuing you. Remember that you are helpless without God. Refocus yourself upon God and godly things. Rely upon God for rescue from despair. And remember God in thanksgiving. Respond to God in obedience. I don't know what your personal application was from last week. If you were here or if just hearing it now, you have some personal application that you thought of that you need to write down. But I'll say this. You probably stumble along the way. Even if you're in the process of running to God this morning or this week, I can tell you with a bit of confidence that you will probably stumble as you run to God and run with Him. You'll probably need to repent and run back to God again. This is the struggle along the Christian pilgrimage. But be careful, loved ones. Not to hear the enemy's voice saying that your last failure, perhaps your failure to live up to the commitment that you made last week to spend time in God's word, is evidence of your inability or unworthiness. Remember, God is pursuing you still. Remember that you are helpless without him. Rely on him for your rescue and remember him in thanksgiving. Respond in obedience today just like our students struggling to get their memory burst down. Continue to respond in obedience. Christianity does not pull the world into a guilt-ridden state for the purpose of burdening us or holding us down. In truth, when we respond to God, when you run back to Him as many times as you run away from Him, when you find yourself running with Him, you find our failures are not portraits of our guilt, but of His great grace. Pray with me as we prepare to read from God's Word. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning and this time that we have to come together to worship your name, to sing songs of your praise, and to know your great grace as we see it in our lives. Father, give us the courage to face our guilt, not with trepidation, but with genuine remorse as we repent to you and celebrate your amazing mercy in our lives. Lord, thank you for salvation, for loving us, for teaching us to love you. Guide us more as we seek to understand what these things mean as we study your word. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray, amen. Jonah chapter 3 begins, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly, an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, 
But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God is a God of the second chance. We find immediately in chapter 3, it begins the same as chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah and told him to go to Nineveh. Even though Jonah ran away from God in disobedience, from personal preference, whatever it is, he ran in the opposite direction, fleeing God's will for his life. Was resigned himself to, be, um, to die. First in the belly of a boat. And then when he was tossed overboard in the belly of the sea until he was rescued by a fish that God had appointed to save him. The word of the Lord came to his prophet. When we began this study, we found Jonah running and fleeing because what was keeping him away from going from the Ninevites was the mainly political issues that separated Israel and Nineveh or the Assyrian Empire that it was a part of. And he's running away out of a discontent for the people that he's called to go and minister to. I ask this morning as we look at this and we see God giving him a second chance, was it in fact God's will all along that Jonah would disobey him? That, God would run, that Jonah would run away? that he would find himself on a ship, that he would be tossed overboard, that he would be swallowed by a fish. Was all of this a part of God's sovereign will for Jonah? Well, we say it must be. As we've just read, the word of God was received by the Ninevites with urgent repentance and remorse of their evil ways. I want to be careful in reading into this, but one thing that I might consider is such a dramatic repentance doesn't happen just by hearing the word of a prophet. There's still disobedience born inside of man's heart. Even here this morning, as I have the opportunity to preach, as I have the opportunity to share God's word, I would say in most instances, it is not simply by hearing God's judgment proclaimed that causes people to surrender their life to Jesus as Lord. Now, it might plant the seed. It might cause someone to come forward and I have questions to say, I want to know more about that. I'm challenged by this. Maybe I disagree with this. I love it when people disagree because it's a great opportunity to have a conversation. But it's the relationship that teaches them about God. Look at the response in Jonah chapter 3. Jonah presents the word that God gave to him, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. This is a dramatic instance of change. Not just that, but we see their picture of repentance. Not just going from the king to everyone in the land, but even applying to their animals. This is a dramatic turn away from sin, and we'll speak some more about that in a moment. But I wonder, what was it about Jonah that made him so effective? Was it that he was vomited on dry land, and perhaps the news in the area was so prevalent that it traveled to Nineveh before him, and the people knew about this guy that ran away from God, got tossed overboard on a ship, and was on dry land heading their way? Because i got to tell you, if I read in the newspaper that somebody was heading to Greenwood, Arkansas after getting vomited up on dry land, after being swallowed by a fish, I would be very interested in what they had to say. Maybe it wasn't the news, but... Let's be realistic about this. Jonah's trapped for three days and three nights, the Bible says, inside the digestive tract of a great fish. I don't know about you, but I have some issues with my um, gallbladder. Uh, My digestive tract is pretty acidic. I wonder what the consequences were of spending three days and three nights inside of the digestive tract of any animal. Perhaps Jonah was permanently scarred or disfigured. Perhaps his face carried with it some 
testimony of the veracity of this miraculous event that's taken place in his life. Was it God's will all along that he would be cast aside by running away from him? I mean, this is a troubling question. Was disobedience God's will? I think to say it that way is wrong. But it was certainly within God's knowledge. It was certainly within his plan that he would restore Jonah, that he would break Jonah in his lowest place, crying out from the belly of Sheol in chapter 3, thinking that he's been cast aside, running to God in all of these different ways of repenting, recognizing him and facing him, remembering the promise of Solomon's prayer at the temple, and looking back to God even through his disobedience, so that when the time came that God would say to him a second time, arise and go to Nineveh, that he would take the second chance with great meaning, that it would have significant impact. Take hold of this. God does not just work through us despite our failures. He moves through our failures. God was not surprised by Jonah's disobedience, and he isn't surprised by yours today. He still has a great will. He still has a sovereign plan. He has not left us to um, fall into chaos but he holds all things together by his word, the Bible says. Likewise, he's holding the plan for your life in the same way. George Morrison writes, The victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. Do not convince yourself or allow yourself to be convinced that God has no use for you because of your failures. God uses man and women despite our failures, despite our faults. He is glorified in using the low among us because he is a God of the second chance. What an amazing promise. When we look back at Jonah and the difference we find in him between chapter 1 and chapter 3, in chapter 1, he's running away from God. He's in rebellion against his word. But in chapter 3, he is a man bound by God's word. Arise and go into that great city and call out against it the message I tell you. So he arises. He goes to Nineveh. Verse 3, according to the word of the Lord. And then it goes on. The Bible says that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, giving us some immediate picture of what Nineveh looked like. I spent some time uh, as we started our study of Jonah talking about the size of Nineveh, how it was perhaps the largest city at this point in history. But here, the Bible says that it was three days' journey in breadth. Now imagine this. To get from one side of Nineveh to the other side, and it's not clear. I'm not sure if I should interpret in breadth as going around the circumference of the city or literally passing through the center of it. Either way, it's a big city. On one of those treks, it takes three days as long as Jonah was in the fish. And so here we get the picture of Jonah traveling into the city, going into this, and it says that he travels a day's journey, and I almost get this picture in my head of a prophet who still is not excited about ministering to these awful Assyrian people. Because I do mean it. The Assyrians, the way that they lived, the way that they structured themselves, the way that they put slaves under them, the way that they executed people was disgusting. In fact, if you look back, and this is an aside, so if you can just pause with me for a moment. When we talk about the cross and how cruel it was as a punishment, unequivocally everyone agrees that the most heinous way to execute a prisoner was the Roman crucifixion. The truth is, civilization didn't come up with the idea of scourging the back of an individual, casting them and making them exert themselves under the midday heat, carrying a large load to publicly humiliate them so that they would hang from a tree and effectively drown from not being able to create enough space between their shoulders for their lungs to fill up with air, all the while requiring them to push up on a nail through their shin as their scourged back rubbed up against a plank so that they could breathe and take a gasp of air. 
until the point that they were so physically incapable of doing that that they would die by exasperation. Civilization is not creative enough to come up with such a grisly picture of death on their own. It began in the Assyrian Empire. The first crucifixion was not a cross like we think of it, but it was a plank. Here's the depravity of man next door to Israel in Jonah's day that is drawing out the worst possible picture of death. All within God's will. Just as God had preordained that Jonah would carry significant testimony as he was cast aside in the belly of the fish, God also preordained that it would be the Assyrian Empire that would come to power, that would eventually judge Israel, that would conquer the northern kingdom, that would begin the process of establishing this crucifixion, which after the Babylonians took over and... and, uh, over through the Assyrians would become their new method and eventually would be inherited by the Roman Empire that would cast Israel into the place where they were waiting and looking for this king who would restore them, all the while unable to recognize the king coming down from the Mount of Olives on a colt. God's will is amazing when we zoom out just a moment. We see Jonah here going to these awful people to proclaim this word. And the picture that I have in my mind is of this disgruntled prophet with his head down, stomping along for one day's journey all the way to the city, the city of, center of the city to say 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And if I was Jonah at this point just thinking about the way that the Assyrians treated their people, I would have said it with much glee to say that these awful and wicked people, you've got 40 days and your time is done. Now I'm warning you because God told me to. If I had my choice, I wouldn't warn you. I'd just watch it happen. But God told me to be here, so I want you to know it's coming. 40 days, you'll be overthrown. Nineveh was the royal city of the Assyrian Empire. Not only was it a great city, it was significant in many ways because it stood at the heart of the Assyrian Empire. We're told that the king, and in the text it says the king of Nineveh, um, which is an all right depiction because we're in Nineveh and we're specifically talking to the Ninevites, but because this is a part of the Assyrian Empire, this is actually the king of Assyria. Here he is taking place, and he's among those who are repenting and turning to God, pleading with him that he might turn against his decision to judge them. Now, when I look at this, again, looking at what is coming in verse 5, that the people of Nineveh believed God, that their repentance was genuine, that they turned in sackcloth, that they did all of these things... I wonder if Jonah didn't say more. If he didn't give them some idea who this God is that is coming to judge them. That he is the God of not just the dry land, but the God of the sea. This great God that stands much greater than that of the Phoenicians that he was traveling with. The God who has authority over all things because he created all things. Regardless, I see Jonah in chapter 3 bound by God's word not to insert his own opinion or his own preferences, but to be obedient to what God has perfectly said, putting faith in the fact that what God has said is sufficient. He acts in obedience and he stays obedient. When God gives us a second chance, it is important to obey him with the same fervor that we trust him. In fact, Spurgeon, in speaking on this, draws a picture that faith and trust and obedience are all wrapped up, one and the same, because, he says, you and I must be willing to do as God tells us when God tells us. Faith and obedience are bound up in the same bundle. He who obeys God trusts God. And he draws out what it means to obey God even when things don't seem to make sense. 
to say that I obey God whenever He's leading me in a certain, certain direction, when His Word tells me something that is perfect, when His Word tells me something that contradicts that that the majority of the people in my community might say, when the Word tells me to stand against something in the world that doesn't seem to make sense to everyone else, when it seems to contradict common sense, even my own doubts and insecurities, well, how am I supposed to respond other than that of obedience? If I really have faith in God, if I trust Him as my Savior, doesn't that mean that I also trust whenever He tells me to stand for something that contradicts my own doubts? Or is the measure of my obedience actually a representation of my lack of faith? 1 John 2.3 And by this we know that we know Him, that we obey His commandments. Obedience is absolutely a measurement of our faith in Christ. It's a measurement of how much we trust Him. It's a measure of how much we surrender to Him. Because if I trust Him with my life, because I realize that my only hope of a Savior is in Christ Jesus alone, then I'm also willing to obey Him in everything else. Because there's nothing in me that will save me. When God gives you a second chance, obey God has spoken through His Word. His will cannot, nor will it ever, contradict what the Bible says. As a third point this morning, I want you to see that when God gives you a second chance, not only should you realize that He's the God of the second chance and take hold of that without guilt, but with confidence as a measure of His great mercy, not only should you be obedient to Him in that, but you should realize that He does it because He has an amazing plan. Our text goes on to say that the people of Nineveh believed God. And it's at this point that I say, surely, Jonah revealed more to those people than, than what is recorded in our text while being obedient to Him. While at the same time simply marveling at the simplicity of faith, salvation comes through faith in a Savior and believing that He is our only hope. The Bible says that the people of Nineveh believed. And some scholars and those of us who are reading this story would ask the question, well, was this some sort of fire insurance faith where they were pleading out to God that they might not be judged? Was this the equivalent of the way that they worshipped pagan gods? Well, I would challenge you to look at jo Jesus' own testimony about Jonah's ministry in Nineveh. In Luke 11, verse 29, he says, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. This is Jesus speaking to the crowds. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be for this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here today. Jesus was speaking to his generation within the first century, but I think the same could certainly be said about our generation. In fact, Scripture affirms it, that as the end time comes near, and by the way, for all of you that are not clear on what end times mean, we're in the end times now. In fact, we've been in the end time since Jesus ascended into heaven. And every single day we are even more further into the end times. And the Bible affirms that the days of the end times will be wicked, increasingly in, increasing in evil. Jesus said during the first century that this generation is an evil one because they seek a sign, but they've already received it. If that could be said by Jesus during his time, all the more it could be said during our time today that this generation is wicked. 
that this generation says, give me a sign that I might know that God is real. You say that all of your principles are hinged up on this one issue of a sovereign God revealing his will to a people, that this revealed religion has come before us and that we're supposed to take the Bible as an authoritative book for life and for faith. Well, the sign's already been given to us. It was given to the people of Nineveh. And here's Jesus' picture. If you have any doubts that the Ninevites were raised up and that their repentance was genuine, Jesus tells us that when judgment comes, that the Ninevite men will be there condemning the generation of wickedness because they repented. Now, this picture, I think, is even more crucial. I'm looking at this from a broad perspective for our generation, that whenever judgment comes, that these saved saints in Nineveh will be there proclaiming Jesus' good name by the simplicity of their faith. But look at it more immediately. Jonah represented the nation of Israel who was unwilling to repent when the prophet Amos came to him, when Nahum preached. All of these prophets who came to the nation of Israel to say that God's judgment is coming against Israel, that you will be overthrown as God chastens you. And they would not repent. They would not turn away from their wickedness, but here in Nineveh, these awful people are willing to repent of their own wickedness. When the time comes that the church will stand in judgment as we look upon Christ, I wonder if the church won't be like the nation of Israel standing here unrepentant because we're unwilling to yield ourselves to God with as much veracity as the Ninevites do here. In a broader biblical narrative, we can see how God is using the story of Jonah to condemn the chosen people who do not trust God. How upon lack of faith in Jesus, they are condemned. We've seen how God's sovereignty surely included Jonah running away. And we look at what he does, again, to seek and to save the lost, his lowly and gentle spirit, pursuing those who rebel against him, just as he is pursuing you today. Just as God is pursuing you to run back to Him, even in disobedience, to turn to Him and to recognize Him as Lord of your life, to reaffirm that He is Lord of your life. How often do we allow our business minds, our social talents, or our lack of either of those things to influence the way that we navigate a life of faith? Do we set on a pedestal the running of the church Do we prayerfully consider and seek God's will as we set goals? Or when the time comes that God says through us, through circumstances that he uses, that we desire to do something in setting this goal? Or maybe, oh, this is awful when God does this. When God says, I had this goal for you and I wanted you to work on it, but now it's time to abandon it. And we have to set aside our pride. We have to set aside our needs and our own personal desires that we have to run back to Him, yielding to the guiding of the Spirit. If we place priority on the theme of Vacation Bible School, the theme verses of Vacation Bible School, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If we place priority on this, these things should come naturally, but they so often do not. It's easy to preach to a bunch of unregenerate people and to tell them the story of God's judgment coming. To tell them that in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. To tell lost people that God's judgment, because He is holy and righteous, He must judge. That the end days are here and that they are coming sooner than you think. That the urgency that we should run back to God is with the same urgency that the people of Nineveh repented and turned to God here. Verse 8 says, Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence of his hands. Who knows? God may true. I'm sorry, I went too far down. The decree issued by the king of Nineveh 
is in verse 7. And it says, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. I want to talk about that word mightily. Because I think a more appropriate translation would be urgently. Crying out to God urgently. So often we stand in the way of God's will by trying to insert ourselves into what He is doing. I'm not saying that you're bigger than God or that your own disobedience could possibly thwart or overcome God's will. Surely not. But you do miss out. Your running away from Him does leave you behind. It does fail to glorify Him. It goes against the purpose with which you were created. God's plan is amazing. And we need to desire God's plan in our own lives over our own desires. God is the God of the second chance. God of an incredible mercy. I have to spend time on this because the Bible just says something stranger than all get out here. And I'll skip down so that for, the, for the sake of time this morning. The plea of the king of Nineveh in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger. And then verse 10. And God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, and God relented. Other translations might say God repented. He turned away. He changed his mind. Wait a second. How does an infallible God change his mind? How does an unchanging God repent? This is a mind-boggling statement. But it's consistent throughout Scripture. Uh, I want to... Just for a second, whenever we look at these attributes of God, we kind of learn more about Him, that we might know Him, and that we might have this relationship with Him, that we might understand how we run to Him and what it's like when we're running with Him in obedience to all of these things. The Bible often speaks about God in such a way to anthropomorphize Him, which just means it gives Him human characteristics. It would be like that if I was talking about the church and I said that the church has a head. Well... The church, in a literal sense, is a body, but does it have a head? Surely Christ is the head of the church. The Bible says so. But the purpose of this is to give us a picture of the way that the church functions by giving it human-like attributes. The Bible even says that the hand of God is against people, but it also tells us that God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a hand. Well... The Bible does this, we remember, because this is the inspired Word of God speaking to His people, revealing Himself to His people, disclosing and showing you and I who God is, because this is how we know Him. And so He gives us these pictures from our own perspective that we might understand Him. So when we read that God repented, that He relented, that He turned away, all of these different things, it's much the same way as giving a God who does not have a body a hand so that we might understand what this looks like, because from humans' perspective, it does look like God changed His mind. But, He is not a God who needs to change His mind, because He's perfect. To give you an example of this, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we find Saul is being condemned. He's being told that he's no longer the chosen man of God, that God's will will be against him. In verse 11, God says to the prophet Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back, turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. God says, I regret that I made the decision to make Saul king. Jump down to verse 29. God says, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that should have regret. 
In the same chapter, is there a contradiction to say that God regretted making Saul king and that the glory of Israel, God, would not have regret because he's not a man and has no need for regret? Absolutely not. There's no contradiction. There's no contradiction at all. There can't be. These things are in congruence with one another, actually, because we see from God's perspective, he has no regret. Rather, this is his will. It was his will all along then that Nineveh would repent. But from human perspective, it looks like he's changed his mind. Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 18, verse 7, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. God's mercy is consistent with His holiness that demands judgment. This is something to praise. When we see God changing His mind, we must take hold of the reality that the immeasurable mercy of God is towards us. When Jonah was running away from God, do we see the storm of God's judgment just as an out-of-control God who's coming against him? Maybe like a, a toddler who has fireflies in a glass jar just shaking it back and forth, trying to get them to do what he wants, but ultimately not truly in control? Absolutely not. We see a God who is all-powerful and sovereign in all things and chooses the process of chastening and disciplining those whom He loves as a means to call them to Him. Do not look around at God's chastening in your life as that of a God who is not able to control the world around you. We make this mistake too often. I'll get this... I'll get through this punishment and I'll be on my way. I remember as growing up, I reached a certain age and it was a monumental moment in my childhood. My parents gave us spankings. I remember the first time I did something bad. I knew I was going to get spanked for it and I didn't care. Because I could get through the spanking and go on my way. By the way, parents, you know they, they stop working after a while. My dad bent me over. Whap! I stood up, pulled my pants back up, and I said, is that all you got? And walked out the door. My dad was hot on my tail after that, and I won't finish how the story ends. But I will tell you that Christians oftentimes have the same perspective of God. I'll just get through this punishment and be on my way. God is perfectly in control. God isn't chastening you just so you can do whatever you want and be on your way. He's chastening you because He loves you and wants you to correct your decisions. He wants you to run back to Him because He has a great mercy for you if you will repent. He still has a plan for you and a desire to use you. God's relenting is not a picture of weakness, but it is a picture of His great mercy. And God's mercy can be experienced in your life today. When we look at the people of Nineveh and we see this genuine repentance, I want to be clear that while Nineveh, Nineveh was a great, certainly a great city, it was also a city of great sin. Wearsby writes, drawing out the cultural context, that Nineveh was a great in sin, for the Assyrians were known far and wide for their violence, showing no mercy to their enemies. They impaled live victims on sharp poles, leaving them to roast, at, roast to death in the desert sun. The beheaded people by the thousands and stacked their skulls up in piles by the city gates, and they even skinned people alive. They respected neither age nor sex and followed a policy of killing babies or young children so they wouldn't have to care for them. All the talk this morning of God's great plan about His great mercy reminds me that there is a reason His mercy must be great. 
A reason His grace is so highly praised because there is nothing in all of creation that redeems itself. There's nothing inside of us that warrants what we see from a loving God, even to know Him as a loving God. I paint the picture of the Assyrians and I tell you of their wickedness, not just to give you some picture of what's going on here as Jonah's called to come to them and, and to preach this message and, and that they would receive it and that they would believe just so that you could have context. I give you this message because the truth is your sin is just as odious to God. I would even say it's worse. If you know God and have come to know Him and you call Him Lord and you continue to live a life of disobedience, if God's revealed to you in some way that this is your mission field, this is where you're called, that you're supposed to contribute to this, that you're supposed to provide for this, maybe even something as simple as, Christian, hear me, reading your Bible, and you continue to neglect these disciplines in your life, if you continue to be complacent in being spiritually immature and inept to worship God in an honest and authentic way, your sin is as odious to God as that of the Assyrians. When we preach of God's judgment, and we realize that his judgment is not strict or stern, but warrant and deserved. And maybe we don't speak about this enough. But the reality of hell, my friends, is not just a terrifying picture. It is a deserved punishment. When the Puritans would preach about sulfur fire burning amongst us and Jonathan Edwards would give us the picture that sinners are like that of a spider hanging from a web in the hand of God before the flames, they did this not to paint a picture of how terrifying hell was and the consequences of it. Because truly, the most terrifying thing of hell is that once a person is cast into Sheol, as Jonah would say, they are separated forever from the presence of God. Every good thing you've ever experienced in life is completely without you. The mercy of God in every single morning is gone. And you deserve it. Every bit of it, you've earned it. Not one Christian can say to a sinner, I don't have to worry about that because I don't deserve it anymore. I can only say I don't have to worry about that because God's great grace, His amazing mercy, His wonderfully beautiful plan has rescued me from it. When we cry out to God, have we begun to trivialize the truth of the gospel to the point that we don't know what genuine repentance is, what it means to be remorseful for our lives? Have we elevated ourselves to the point that think that we are so pious that we cannot honor or glorify Him? And all the while, by being complacent in our spiritual walk with God, that we don't have our own worship disciplines. I mean, think about the absurdity of that. The Bible says clearly, know God, come to know Him. This isn't an academic exercise, but if you've truly been saved, you have a desire to know what's inside of you, right? Go study your Bible. Learn who this God is. Understand what it means when it says that He repents. Understand these things and pursue Him with fervor that you would know the God that you worship. And we neglect that. All the while, making our repentance so trivial that it's not even something that we come to God with authenticity about. And then Christians condemn the world around them for not sticking with a simple morality that's revealed to God, even revealed outside of His Word and natural creation inside of man? We say that the world's lost our mind, but we're so absurd we can't even worship God authentically. 
We talk about judgment and how I'm so glad I don't have to worry about it. Let me say again, 1 John 2.6. We know that we know God and that we obey His commands. If you continue to run away from God with no chastening hand behind you, with no desire to return to God, to run to Him, do you really know Him? Repentance requires genuinely walking away from what you have repented. If it is disobedience to God's will, run to obedience. If it is a failure to spend time with God, make a plan to begin reading your Bible for yourself today. If it is to make prayer a priority in your worship, set a calendar event or an alarm on your phone to remind you of your commitment when the time comes to pray. If it is to honor your wife more faithfully, write out what you will do to honor her and hold yourself accountable to what that commitment. And rejoice that the same God that turns his judgment against the Assyrians, and I'll say temporarily because the Assyrians will be overcome by the Babylonians in about 60 years' time from the perspective of Jonah writing this, God does relent. All this picture of great forgiveness. Isn't it something to grab hold of, to rejoice and to celebrate and to love? It doesn't make us less remorseful for the reality of our sin. But it makes us sing and praise everything that God has done for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your truth. God, for giving us the grace needed simply to understand it. Lord, guide us as we come to you in a moment of invitation to know how to return to you, how to honor you and to glorify you, to ask questions if we have questions, to respond in application, to make your word meaningful in our lives and our day-to-day walk, because it is a walk. And we know it to be a walk of repeated second chances, Lord. But I pray that you might create in us a people who are trustworthy, a people who between second chances are knowing you more and growing with you. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray, amen. What do you stand?